Good morning. It's good to see it on this rainy Sunday, but sunshine in our hearts today. Very happy that you're here to join us in this worship time. And we've been looking at the uh, issue of the Reformation and the recovery of the gospel uh, back in the 16th century. And uh, the importance of this, I'm uh, just reading this week, I've been going through the Old Testament, and there's a story in the Old Testament that I think is uh, applicable to what the church can descend into. There were several generations of bad kings in Judah. Finally, a good king came to the throne. This is back in Second Chronicles 34, verse 14. His name was Josiah. And when he came to the throne, the temple was in such disrepair because uh, no worship had been taking place in the temple. And uh, Josiah wanted to please God, and he'd heard that the temple should be a place of activity and priesthood and worship. So he began to repair the temple and clean it out. And this is talked about Second Chronicles thirty-four fourteen, where it says that Hilkiah the priest found a scroll. They're cleaning out this mess, been in there for two generations. His, the previous kings were all wicked. And they come across this scroll, and the scroll turns out to be the book of the law of Moses. They had discovered it, and they brought it to the king. They didn't even know what it was. See, it's possible for true faith and Scripture to get buried in tradition and time and neglect. So one of the things that I've been wanting to do these last two or three weeks is bring to the forefront a clarion articulated doctrine of our faith core doctrine of saving faith. And so today we're going to look at this. Uh, the leader was Martin Luther in 1517 and the text that he came across that changed his life. He called it the gate to paradise. He said, uh, as I knocked on the door of this text, it became for me a door to paradise. So this is going to be Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now remember, there are no Bibles at this time. Bibles have all been banned, and that it's, it's actually against the law of the church and the state to own a Bible. And so Luther, the only reason he had a Bible is because he was a teacher in the university and a pastor of the local church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And all the world is Roman Catholic. There are no denominations. There is no freedom of religion. There is no independence. There is only the one faith without a Bible. And you can imagine, that's why it's called the Dark Ages because people just didn't know what to believe unless the church told it to them. Well, Luther, reading the Bible, because he was a teacher, came across this verse, 16. 
chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just live by faith. Luther's uh, key text, as he studied this for not just months, probably two or three years, just uh, gradually it, it, un, it unfolded to him. But he saw several things in this. One is, notice in verse 17, in it, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel message of justification or being made righteous or given a righteous standing before God, this message is revealed. It's unveiled to you. It's not something so much that you just sort of study your way into. It usually comes with some struggle or questioning on how to be right with God. Now let me say a word about this phrase in verse 17. In it the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he mean by the righteousness of God? This was a big phrase to Luther. Sometimes you hear or read in the scripture the phrase the work of God. Uh, What that means is it's not a work he requires from you, but it's a work he does for us. Or maybe the power of God. Uh, Again, when you read the phrase the power of God, what do you think? You think this is the power, not that he requires from me, but that he bestows on me or he exerts in the earth. Uh, You might read the phrase the wisdom of God. What does that mean? Again, it's not the wisdom he requires from me. James 1, 5, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It's the wisdom he gives to us. The glory of God. Not the glory he requires, but the glory he bestows. So when we open this up and we read, in it the righteousness of God... Don't think the standard or required righteousness that he wants from us, but think of the righteousness he bestows on us, the gift of God. Now, that was big for Luther when he understood when, that when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he does not mean the righteousness he requires from us, but that he bestows on us. So that... that Uh, helped him. And then it says that this righteousness that God bestows as a gift, not requires as a work, and this is, of course, through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, that this righteousness is revealed to you. The, The Greek word for revealed here is apocalypsis. Um, 
uh, or apocalypsis. It's apo means away from, and calypsis means to move a curtain back. And the idea is, we get our word apocalypse from that because it's used in Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. An apocalypse or apocalypsis is when God pulls back the curtain and lets you see something that you can't see by your own effort. It has to be revealed to you. So that what Paul says here is that this righteousness, which is a free gift of God, bestowed on you, not required from you, but bestowed on you as a free gift through Christ. If you have seen this, God has showed it to you. It is supernatural revelation. Because we have a natural tendency to think that I have to work and deserve and earn and, and find my way. What Paul says is, and what Luther saw was, the righteousness of God is an absolute, uh, indescribable, sovereignly given gift where he simply pulls back the curtain and lets you see a righteousness that he's handing to you. Oh, man. And if you have been given this privilege then your first response is, that's unbelievable. And yet you believe it, and you receive it. It is unveiled righteousness, not achieved righteousness. It's the same thing in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, in talking regarding people who did not believe... Here's what he says in Matthew eleven twenty five. I think we have this one. He, he says, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but he's, he's referring to people who didn't follow him or believe his words. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden this from those who are very wise in their own eyes. And you have revealed it again apocalypsis. You have pulled back the curtain and showed it to people who come like little children. See, you don't come with, well, I know what I'm doing and, and I'm trusting, uh, you know, it's, we have to work this out and God understands and all these kinds of thoughts that we have. But you come like a little child, say, God, what do I need? How do I need to respond to you? like a little child. And so uh, Jesus said, that is revealed. It's revealed. And if you can just picture this, why Jesus let John see the events unfolding in the book of Revelation and how it was revealed to him. That's the same way, the same word, it's the same way and the same privilege you have of being shown a righteousness that is bestowed. Hallelujah. Now here's a second thing that Luther saw in this text. And you'll notice something here in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. 
And if you'll pull that up again, once again, one Romans 1, verse 17. And that is, for he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So how, how is this righteousness that's given as a gift unveiled? Uh, in it. Where is, what is it? Because he says, if you back up to verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, this, right, this free righteousness is revealed. It's unveiled. In other words, in the preaching and proclamation of the gospel is when God opens your eyes and pulls back the curtain so that you can see. How important does this make, the preaching of the gospel? Now, I'll tell you something. Uh, One of the things that happened in the Reformation is they, during the Roman Catholic Dark Ages, they kept the pulpit on the side and they had in the middle a table on which they give forth the mass distributed what was literally in their view the literal body and literal blood of Jesus because they were re-sacrificing Christ again on that altar when the reformation happened guess what They put the table over, move the pulpit to the side because Jesus' death is done, your sins are paid, and it's our job now to just proclaim it, not repeat it. (laughs) But as the text says in Hebrews 10, 12, this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. See, it is done. So we moved, they moved the pulpit, and for five or six hundred years, this is the way it's been. Preaching the gospel has become central to the Reformation churches and the Protestant churches. Whereas we still have communion, but what are we doing? Are we seeking forgiveness? No, we're celebrating it. And and let me add this about 1 Corinthians 11. Because I meet this all the time. People, I'm not worthy to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, that the worthiness is in your behavior. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks because we're going to end our series on with communion. But it's in the behavior because they were taking their communion and going into a corner and the rich people were eating with the rich people and wouldn't share anything or have any fellowship to do with the poor people. So Paul says this is, un- this is taking communion unworthily. He does not say in 1 Corinthians 11, you are unworthy, don't come if you're unworthy, but don't partake unworthily. There's a big difference there. But in our communion, in Protestant communion, we celebrate the invitation to come freely to God through the finished sacrifice of Christ. So the the pulpits were placed in the middle because, verse 17, in it, the gospel, is this righteousness unveiled. And we can see it. Then here's the third thing. 
it is unveiled to a growing faith. Look at verse 17. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is unveiled from faith or to faith unto another level of faith. In other words, your righteous standing, you do not grow more righteous than your standing already gives you in Christ. You can grow in knowledge, you can grow in grace, you can grow in strength, you can grow in faith, but it's faith to more faith. Faith to greater faith. There are levels of faith. But it's not levels of standing or more acceptance or more forgiveness. You can't get more forgiven or have greater status than being a son of God in the righteousness of Christ. So he says, grow in your grasp of that, your comprehension of that, your faith of that. It's given to increasing faith. Acts 14.27 refers to faith as a door. In other words, when do I go from being not a Christian to being a Christian? And Acts 14.27 says, Paul describes it, God opened a door of faith to Gentiles. So if you've walked, if you have at a moment in time, see, a, a door is not something you constantly go in. You go through it. There's a moment in time you go through the door into the household. And in that moment of time in which you put your faith in Jesus Christ for all the righteousness you will ever need to, for life and death, in that moment you walk through the door from not being a Christian to being a Christian. Split second. Faith in Christ. So John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But if you do not believe in him, you are condemned already. Or, or Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So we receive it in a growing faith. I want to add just another word or two to this issue of faith. The, the issue of faith in Christ is the only message that I know through which you can gain assurance that when you die you'll go to heaven. It's the only message, and I've looked at these, uh, and, and, and again, I don't want to be critical or put people down. That's not, I, I, it's not my personality to do so. But looking at the various messages, when you look, for example, at the Roman Catholic Church, how in the Roman Catholic system do you get right with God? And they have, some of you have Roman Catholic backgrounds, you know there are what's called seven sacraments. And you go through these sacraments. They help you get right standing with God and assurance. But they do not give you certainty. Now, in Islam, you have five pillars. I don't, I don't remember what they are. Some of y'all may know them. Uh, um, pilgrimage to Mecca, confessing that Muhammad is the prophet, uh, fasting, uh, uh, praying five days or five times a day. There's five pillars. But guess what? None of them do they give 
certainty. It's the best you can do. You take the five pillars, prop, up, prop yourself up on them, and hope that they hold up when you, get, when you die and stand before God. You take the seven sacraments, you hope it's enough that you took, that you did it often enough, and when you get to, to heaven, even, even people who are now saints, you have to die before you can be a saint. So there is no certainty. And just recently, <clears throat> uh, I was, Judaism has just had its uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, New Year starts. Uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And looking at uh, how do they find assurance. And, uh, you know, because in the Old Testament, in Old Covenant Judaism, you had the temple and the priesthood, and you brought your sacrifice, you shed the blood of the lamb, and that was your substitute for that year. What do they do today? And there's a many, many traditions. But one of the things that has developed, it doesn't have any basis in the Old Testament, is that you, uh, and this is in Brooklyn, show us that picture um, these are Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews. And they have in their hands what? What is that? Can you tell? It's a chicken. And you take this chicken. Uh, one group in Brooklyn had 50,000 orders for chickens. You take this chicken and you take it to the rabbi. They're in line to get to the rabbi. And you swing it around your head three times, cut his head off, and the blood of the chicken will be atonement for your sin. And I'm going to need more than a chicken. (laughs) 50,000 chickens wouldn't cover my sin. But see, they have to have something. What do you do? And did y'all, you might have read about this. One of the things they're doing is they're saying... They have been sued by the Humane Society in New York uh, for cruelty to animals. And so one of the alternatives that they are now practicing is that you take a handkerchief, put money in it, and swing it around your head, and then give it to charity. See, my question would be, how much money? Uh, 50 cents? If my... I have a sensitive conscience and a failure, a high failure rate, I'm going to need thousands and thousands of dollars. Some of y'all are going to need a million dollars. This front row here, I can just tell. <laughs> You're going to need some loans. <laughs> Swing that around. And you know what? When you get done, you could just have paid one more cent, couldn't you? Where's assurance? On Yom Kippur, or Rosh Hashanah, they have the big service in the synagogues. And I, did y'all see this online or in the news where the synagogue in New York, Temple, Temple Emmanuel, this is a huge, posh synagogue in New York. And you go to Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and pay $3,000 and you can sit in the first ten rows. Yeah. Now you can get cheaper seats in the back, less than less than a thousand dollars. I think I found 
the solution to Project 145. <laughs> right here. And now, over here. <laughs> but you see how the message and God's forgiveness and His grace can get buried in sacraments and pillars and traditions and things that have no connection and leave you without any genuine assurance of salvation. Hallelujah for the Word of God that says you can be righteous through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't trust in a chicken. Don't trust in your money. Trust in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a message. What a message. Because see, if a chicken dies for me, that's one thing. I, I would never know if it was good. But when I see the Son of God equal to the Father in glory and majesty sacrificed for me, brother, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's got to be valuable enough. If God's valuable, the sacrifice is valuable because that's how much I need for assurance. This message brings an assurance. In Luke 23, verse 42, a thief hang on the cross next to Jesus. And all he could do, he, hadn't, he couldn't do any pillars or sacraments or works of any kind. He couldn't even bring a sacrifice to the temple. But he said to Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me. Boom. Nothing done. And that, my friend, is a wonderful faith. And you can grow in this faith. So it's given to faith. One, one quick final thing. This message of justification by faith that Luther discovered, rediscovered, is in agreement with and confirmed by the Old Testament. You see verse 17? As it is written, the righteous shall live. You can live by faith. As it is written. This is not something new Paul came up with. This is illustrated, confirmed, predicted, prophesied, pictured in the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel is not a new thing when it comes. It's Old and New Testaments. As it is written. And interestingly, he quotes from a book I doubt you have read. The book of Habakkuk. Paul quotes this verse and the entire gospel is based on it. The just shall live by faith, not works. Because Habakkuk, get the context of the book of Habakkuk, the little prophet. Habakkuk is viewing a time when there's not going to be a temple. The Babylonians are coming in. You see it in Habakkuk chapter 1. The Babylonians are coming in. This is about 600 B.C. And they're going to, do, they're going to destroy the city, the temple. There's not going to be sacrifices. There's not going to be a priesthood. There's not going to be the law of Moses you can't do anything except go to... They're going to scatter you to the four winds. So how do we live? 
How do we make it? What do I do now? And Habakkuk said, this is so confusing to me, I'm going to go to my watchtower. I'm going to get up in the tower, and I'm going to pray and talk to God and think about this. And it was unveiled to him. And God came to him. This is Habakkuk 2.1. He said, now I want you to write this down. This is what God told him. Write this in a vision. Even if somebody's running by so they can see it. Here's, here's, here's the statement. Here's how you can live. Those who want to be righteous with me live by faith. Put your faith in me. Stay with me. I will create life. I will be the source of life. Keep your eyes on me. Put faith in me. Not faith in the temple because it's gone. Faith in the sacrifices, there are none. Faith in me. And then in clarity in the New Testament, it's faith in what God has done at the cross. God showed Habakkuk, he unveiled to him how he can live without the function of Old Covenant ceremonial Judaism or the rituals and works of the law. And it was in putting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting his faith in God. So we ask these questions. How do we live? How are we going to live? How will we live if some of you are asking this. How will we survive? How will we live if Hillary Clinton's elected president? Others are saying, what if Donald Trump's elected president? <laughs> how will we live? You know what God said to Habakkuk? The just will live when you put your faith in God. You don't need Billy Graham as president to survive. You need God. What about death? How will we live? Maybe you have a disease. Maybe you have a a diagnosis of some bad disease. How will you live? What are you going to do when you come to the edge of death? Habakkuk would say, faith, the righteous will live by faith. Luther, Martin Luther, saw this. He had six children. One of the sweetest was a little girl named Magdalena. He called her Lena. And he wrote of her that she has such a mild and affectionate disposition. She, she would travel with him sometimes. And out of the six children, he seemed to favor her. And she, was, she became a Christian early, dedicated Christian. And when she was 14, she got a disease, which I tried to find out what it was, and I, I don't know. But it, was, it lingered a bit before she died, and Luther was there and held her in his arms when she passed. He said, how can I have at the same time 
such great sorrow and great peace? I don't know. But on her grave marker, I was so touched by this, because he'd heard her say this. She was a, she was a wonderful Christian. Uh, he called her a saint. On her grave marker, he put these words in her mouth. Here do I, Luther's daughter, rest, sleeping now along with all the blessed. In sin and trespass I was born, and forever I would have mourned. But I live, and it's so good, for Christ has saved me with his blood. Can you imagine now what a beautiful legacy to leave your children? When your children run into problems, or you're... I have a funeral today, but the guy was uh, at 2 o'clock. He died. He's 42 years old. How do we know how far we have to go? How, how long we have to live? What do you tell your children? How will I live? They will ask you one day. Parents, you need a message for that. The just shall live by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we live. How do we face a future like we have? How do we solve issues like we must face every week? The just shall live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. This is a legacy for family and churches. And I would just ask, has it been unveiled to you? Oh, man, if it has, you are blessed. (laughs) For in it... The righteousness of God is unveiled to faith. Amen.